the reading is on page 916 in the Bible, it's Acts chapter 8, verses 4 to 25. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralysed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practised magic in the city, and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptised, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles of Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was, giving, was, was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness, and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified, and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Thanks, Alistair. Kiss you, Karen. Uh, the question I want for us to think about this lunchtime is, what is your biggest mistake that you wish never happened? What is your biggest mistake that you wish never happened? Take about 10 seconds to think about it. Okay, before you start to worry, uh, don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to share with the person next to you. Been around the UK to know that being private and being reserved is very important to British culture, so don't worry, I'm going to ask you to share. But it's worth saying that not sharing uh, doesn't mean that those mistakes don't exist. It's fair to say that all of us have made mistakes, some small ones and some really big ones. And some mistakes that we've made, we wish we have never made. You know, some of the mistakes that we've made have left a big scar on our lives. Uh, it may affect the way you live, the way we relate to others. I wonder whether it's... Shall we just close the door behind? Is it okay? Thank you. 
Thanks, Karen. And the problem with some of these mistakes that we've made in our past and history is that we, we can't undo the damage that we've done. Uh, we can't unsee the things that we've seen. We can't take back the words that we have said. And we can't reverse the actions that we have done. So we live with these consequences day to day. So what is your biggest mistake that you wish never happened? And then let me ask, what does it take for, for us to be restored? Some of us, we are just resigned to the mistakes we've done. Or we try to justify the problems away. We put it in the airtight jar, we close the lid, throw it behind and lock it in your subconsciousness and try to forget about it. But see, the thing is, we can't undo the damage that has been done. And I suppose that our mistakes still affect us in our subconsciousness day to day. Some of us, we spend our lives trying to make up for the mistakes we've done. Or perhaps you give more to society you help like a charity, you're a bit more involved in the religion to make up for the mistakes that you have done. But like I said, we can't undo the damage that we've done. We can't erase all the problems that we have caused. So what does it take to be restored from our mistakes? Now we're going to look at God's word today. And Acts chapter 8 is not immediately a passage about restoration and about mistakes. You see, Acts chapter 8, a lot of people use this for various reasons, this passage for various reasons. Uh, people use this as a proof text for the second baptism of the Holy Spirit. Uh, some people use this as a proof text for a miracle ministry or a ministry of laying hands on people. Or perhaps liberals use this passage to prove that the text has no relevance to us today. I mean, miracles, sorcery, like what's going on in this passage? And perhaps the first thing to realize is, if you see your hand up there, uh, is the geography of where we are in Acts chapter 8. Uh, we are in Samaria. Uh, last week, uh, we saw that the first martyr, Stephen, uh, he died. He got stoned. And because of the persecution, the church spread northwards into Samaria. And if you remember the programmatic verse in Acts, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus is speaking to his apostles and he says, You will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, and to Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So you see, Samaria is a really key geographical marker in Acts. Perhaps culturally you might think that being a Samaritan is a good thing. Uh, sorry, let me correct that. I think in the Bible, being a Samaritan is not a good thing. See, being Samaria, uh, the nation of the cap, Samaria, is synonymous really for a thousand years of rebellion and mistakes. If you are roughly familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you might remember that Samaria is the capital of the northern tribe of, of Israel. So King Solomon, quite a famous king in the Old Testament, after he died, the nation of Israel was split into two. You have the northern tribes, comprising of ten tribes, and you have the southern tribes, comprising of Judah and Benjamin. And Samaria was the capital of the northern tribes. And what characterized <laughs> the history of Samaria was rebellion. And the moment where the northern tribes split from the southern tribe, all of the time of history of Samaria was marked by rebellion. All the kings of the northern tribes were bad 
Uh, the place of worship was meant to be in Jerusalem in the south, but they claimed the true place of worship to be in the north in Samaria. After exile, uh, Samaria was still rejecting God for thousands of years. 950 BC, split from the southern tribe, throughout the whole history, rebelling and rejecting God. You see, Samaria is synonymous for a thousand years of rebellion and mistakes. And when we come to our passage today, uh, we see Samaria still under the grip of a counterfeit apostle. Uh, If you listen to the reading, you heard about Simon. Uh, You might think that Simon is the first century equivalent of David Blaine or Chris Angel. But I won't say that he's more than that. Uh, Go to your passage today. Uh, You can see that Samaria is in the grip of his hand. Look at verse 10. They, that's referring to Samaria, all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. So all the people of Samaria paid attention to this man, this magician called Simon. And look at his brand slogan there in verse 10. This man is the power of God that is called great. The, the adjective great has only been used to describe the apostles in Acts so far. And here, um, great is being described used to describe Simon. And look what he's called. This man is the power of God uh, that is called great. So not just great, but from the power of God. You see Simon here, he is a counterfeit apostle. Uh, He is meant to be a parody of the apostles. And in classic Samaritan form, it is kind of recognizing God, but in a false way. Uh, That's what Simon is. And this picture that we get in Acts chapter 8 is Samaria under the power of darkness. You see, Samaria was meant to be part of the chosen nation. Uh, they had all the privileges of Israel. They had the prophets, the oracles, uh, the scriptures, the law. But when we get to Acts chapter 8, uh, we see a really sad picture of Samaria under the power of a magician. Uh, the first point you hand up there is instantaneous over. Powering. Look at verse 4 with me. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when he heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had him. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. The first thing to notice in the passage is the shift of power. Uh, We saw earlier that from the least to the greatest, people of Samaria paid attention to Simon. I look down to verse 6, and you see the crowds there with one accord paid attention to Philip. So there's a real shift of power that's going on from Simon to Philip. 
I look also in verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who pre- had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. Look down to verse 13. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Uh, people of Samaria, amazed by Simon. But when Philip and the gospel comes to town, you have people of Samaria and Simon being amazed by Philip. There's a real shift here in power. And I wonder whether you notice when the passage has been read, the arrangement of material is, is a bit weird. Uh, in the normal flow of a narrative, you get the context of the story and then you get the outcome. Uh, but in the first few verses, you have the outcome. Uh, Philip coming, preaching, and people responding. And then you have the context describing how Samaria was under the captivity of Simon. Uh, so what's going on? Why does Luke flip the flow of a normal narrative? Um, I think something like this. Um, I'm, I'm going to be watching Lord of the Rings uh, with my sister and my wife and my brother-in-law. Uh, we plan to watch the trilogy. Uh, if you watch the normal version, it's nine hours. If you watch the extended version, it's a whooping twelve hours. And sorry, I'm going to spoil the show. I mean, you probably guys, you guys probably have watched it. Uh, the very end of the movie, the ring gets destroyed in the, the, the in Mount Doom, that's right. And when he gets destroyed, this is an amazing scene where the Tower of Sauron comes crumbling down, uh, things start spewing out from the volcano, uh, things are crashing down, and then you see people rejoicing, and that's the end scene. Imagine the movie starts out, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the, the Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, you see that scene right at the beginning. Uh, what's, what's the director trying to communicate to that if the ending is right there in the beginning, and you have 11 and a half hours of context building up? I think the point is quite clear. Uh, he really wants us to know uh, the punchline, uh, the victory. He's trying to highlight to us the victory uh, and the punchline. I think that's what Luke is trying to do here uh, by bringing up front the outcome. Uh, as Philip comes to town, as the gospel comes to town, uh, people respond and people are amazed and there's much joy in the city. See, it's an instantaneous overpowering of the darkness. But not only is there an instantaneous overpowering, there's also an incisive exposing of the darkness. Look at verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's a curious couple of verses. You see, Simon, despite believing and being baptized, he is obviously still a pagan. Uh, Look at verse 18. Now when Simon saw the Spirit was given through the laying of apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone of whom I lay my hands may receive, may receive the Holy Spirit. See, Simon there, he, he acts like a classic idolater, um, which is the principle of I give to receive. Uh, think about any East Asian uh, religion. Uh, you give incense or offerings to the temple in order to receive blessings. 
Uh, think about the false gospel of the prosperity gospel. Uh, you give money to God in order to receive blessing. Uh, think about the idolatry of career. Uh, you give your life, your, your time away uh, to the corporation to receive money, reputation, status, and power. See, that's idolatry, classic idolatry. You give in order to receive. But you can't. Uh, you can't give to receive a gift. Uh, you can't give to receive a gift. Look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. Uh, you can't give to receive the gift of God. And there, Peter, he exposes his heart. He exposes the heart of Simon. Look at verse 21. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Uh, you might ask, does the Simon the magician, does he exhibit genuine repentance here? Uh, I think it's not really clear, but perhaps that's not the point. I think the point is that Peter, he has special insight into Simon's heart. Uh, he sees the intent of his heart. And if you might be familiar that the old covenant that God made with Israel, that was unable to deal with the problem of the heart. But great prophets in the Old Testament prophesy of a day where God would give his people a new heart. I think that's what's happening here as Peter is able to expose the heart of the problem. Uh, that is the heart. And so in this section, we see an incisive exposure of the darkness. Uh, we see an overpowering and, and exposing of the darkness of uh, this complete restoration that's going on. Um, I have two family members, uh, close family members, who have had cancer. Um, and some of you guys might know the traditional methods to deal with cancer involves chemotherapy or radiation where you try to blast the cancer cells away. Uh, but the problem with that is that it can come back. Uh, cancer can come back. But imagine a new method of dealing with the defective gene, ensuring that the cancer never happens again. I think that's what's happening here. It's an overpowering and also an incisive dealing with the root cause of the problem. But you might ask, okay, that's great, uh, but what's the significance of all this? What's the significance of this passage? The first thing I want to remind us that where we are, uh, I mean, we are in the Swiss church, but where we are in the story, we are in Samaria. And Samaria is, if you remember, synonymous for a thousand years of rebellion and mistakes. Ever since 950 BC, the Samaritans were rebelling against God. The repeated refrain to describe the kings of Samaria was they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. A thousand years of bad kings, not turning away from idolatry. They were not like a pagan nation. 
You see, they were worse than a pagan nation. They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the covenant and forces calling them to repent. Uh, they had Elijah, Elisha, telling them to return. But if you read in the Old Testament, the northern tribes of Israel were covered, were littered with idols all over. You see, Samaria is like a rebellious teenager that never grows up, or an adulterous spouse that never, who is never remorseful. So that's the first thing. So remember, we're in Samaria. And the next thing is to remember about Ezekiel 37. Uh, I put the references there. It should be from verse 15 to 28. So you can check out the reference after the talk. And there's a great promise in Ezekiel where God speaks to Ezekiel and he asks him to take one stick which has the name Judah written stick and take another stick which has the name Joseph uh, that refers to the northern tribe, to Samaria. And to join both sticks and to hold them in one hand. And this is what he says. Behold, I will take the people from the nations among from which they have gone and gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel and one king shall be over them all. And no longer two nations, no longer divided into two kingdoms. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one Shepherd. Acts chapter 2. Uh, Jesus, the Davidic king, takes his seat at the Father's right hand. Acts chapter 5. The king is building his new temple, not in Jerusalem, but in the church. Acts chapter 8. The king is marching out to reclaim his kingdom. He is uniting a thousand years of rebellion sticking them back together again. And how does this happen? And how does Acts chapter 8 happen? It's so simple. Uh, it's Philip. He's not even an apostle. He's an ordinary man. But he goes to them. He procla- proclaims to them the gospel that Jesus is the Christ. And the whole city rejoiced. And I think that explains why we see a two-stage process of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because it's almost too simple. The norm in Acts is to believe and receive the Spirit right away. But this passage here is not the norm in Acts. This passage is saying that a thousand years of mistakes and rebellion is wiped clean in 20 verses. Uh, take a look at your Bibles. Uh, just one page here is dealing with a thousand years of rebellion. One page. A thousand years of rebellion against the Lord. Just 20 verses. Dealing with the problem of sin. Rebelling against the Lord. And we've been saying before that Acts is about certainty. Certainty that Jesus is King. But we might ask, what kind of king is Jesus? And he is the king and his message that restores a thousand years of mistakes and rebellion. You see, you you can't purchase this restoration. Uh, You can't atone for it. You can't make up for it. See, society as a whole tries to get us to make up or to pay back for our past mistakes. And we spend our lives trying to pay back for our past mistakes. But like Simon, you can't purchase a 
gift. You can't buy atonement for your sin. And what is the price that society demands for restoration? And here we have the gift from God. A restoration, forgiveness given free. Uh, you can't pay off your biggest mistake. Uh, forgiveness and restoration is a gift. It's a gift from God. A thousand years of rebellion wiped away in 20 verses. See, this is true conquest that's going on. Uh, history is littered with examples of conquest um, of, uh, in the name of religion, the Crusades and Islam. This is true conquest. As the king, he comes to town. A thousand years of rebellion is, is just wiped away. See, this is the kind of king that Christians follow. A king who restores and reunites people by wiping away sin. So I want to encourage you guys to have certainty that Jesus is king. But he's the kind of king that wipes away a thousand years of rebellion. See, it's the gospel that does that. No other religion offers forgiveness and restoration for free. No other religion does that. And so, what does it mean for us? It's really simple. Come to Jesus. Um, have, you, have you made mistakes, like really big mistakes in your life that you wish you had never done? Um, are there words that you have said that you wish you didn't say? Are there actions that you have done that you wish you could undo? Or have you seen things that you wish you could unsee? Uh, what do you do? Uh, you come to Jesus, the King who restores a thousand years of sin and rebellion. See, in society today, society loves to dig up past mistakes, digging into your history, um, and getting you to pay back for all the wrong you've done. There's nothing wrong with justice, but society hasn't learned to forgive. And so the same message, the same gospel truth, that restored and wiped away a thousand years of rebellion, of Samaria's rebellion against the king, and the same message that Jesus is king, is able to restore you and to restore me. So don't put your mistakes in a jar. Don't lock them up. Don't hide them in your subconscious. Uh, put your trust into Jesus. Trust Him that He's a King who restores us. And he, he offers complete forgiveness for free and for all. And there's no one else that does that. Uh, not society, not your family, not your friends. Only Jesus offers this complete restoration. Why don't I pray for us? Father, we praise you that your steadfast love is new every morning. Thank you for Jesus that in his kindness and in his death on the cross, he has willingly taken our sin, and not just our sin, but the sin of the world. So we do praise you, Father, that we might have real certainty that he is the kind of king that we want to follow. Please, will you strengthen us now as we go back to our offices? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.